Let's get on radio. Ready? <clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Let's be turning to Colossians chapter 3. This morning we're in verses 11 to 13. I was anticipating going through 17, but going through, thir- uh, going through this material, I-, I saw some things that I hadn't seen in it before. And so I felt the Holy Spirit just say, let's cut this in half and deal with the information here and then continue next week. So God is always changing things as we study the Word and as we seek to share it, as you well know. Father, thank you so much for your presence, your Word. Father, there is just simply no adjective we can use to begin to explain our need our appreciation, and the effect of your word in us and for us, among us, and through us. Father, I pray that you would move the hearts of every believer in this church to, in a greater way, for some who don't have any perceived need and for those who have a lot of perceived need, Father, that you would increase and make us desperate for your word. Make us desperate. Father, for you have paid the highest price that we should be people of your word. Father, we don't want to neglect it. We don't want to think it secondary or to make it just something on the sideline. Father, would you do a great work of grace in us and just move us to be desperate for your word, to be knowing it, reading it, meditating it on it, understanding it, and walking in it. Father, thank you for this class. Father, thank you for these who come regularly to hear the administration of your word, whether by me or Evan or Bill Treby or others who have done it. Father, the teacher notwithstanding, thank you for teaching us by your spirit. We just ask today as we ask every time that we will leave today having been fed the bread of life. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. Well, this morning, let's read verses 11 to 13 and continue in our study. Again, thank you, ladies, for being here last week. Thank you for uh, your commitment. Thank you for your prayers for the men as we attended what we think was a wonderful retreat. Continue to pray that the seeds that were planted will germinate and will take effect and will produce great amount of fruit. So let's read what Paul has to say today as we continue. Remember, as we go through this, and I remind you every time almost, remember, Paul is speaking to the church. What is the church? The church is the fulfillment of God's great creative purpose as stated in Genesis 1.26, which says together what? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That is God's great creative purpose, that I will have a people with and in whom I will dwell, 
who will be my personal peeps in whom my image, who I am and how I am, this community of three persons relating in a loving relational roles that in me, I'm sorry, in them, this people, I may be manifested to all my creation. And so Paul is writing to this church, this new community, this new creational community, this community now upon the earth that is exhibiting the reality of his purpose that he began in Adam, which was forfeited because of Adam's sin. We today, that church, this church, every church that names the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are that great new community imaging the Word of God, the person of God. And that's why the Word and the, the, the work of God is so important in our lives today for us to be able to fulfill God's great creative purpose. Verse 11, here, where? Where here? The church, in this new community. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. But Christ is all and in all. Therefore, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, even as, as in the same way as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So let's look at what this has to say to us. And as we go through it, Again, I say, as I always will say, this is God's word to me and to each one here personally. Take it as if God has written you a personal word and has your name right at the top of it. Dear Gail, dear Burtis, dear Chris, dear whoever we are. Verse 11. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Remember in the previous verses, in verses 3 to 10, Paul dealt with the personal ethics of God's earthly community. Remember the personal ethics. Those things that we are to do and not to do in our own personal slander, lying, anger. Remember those personal ethics. God, Paul has begun with the personal ethics of this new creational community in its ability to properly image the heavenly community by telling them, put off all these personal sin activities. Now, let's note something here. And actually, I hadn't noted it until I got into this section, and then it dawned on me, and the Holy Spirit does that. He, how many of you had something dawn on you as to the Word? That's called revelation. That's the Holy Spirit. And I'm going through this, and all of a sudden it's like, duh, this is flowing from that. So today flows from last week. First, God begins to change us personally. 
And as we are changed personally, we are then released and freed and changed not only from a personal relationship and walk with God, but into a functioning, fellowshipping relationship among one another. Now, we are saved immediately. We are in fellowship. But sometimes it takes a little bit of time for some of us to get to the point of fellowshipping. And so the fellowship of the church among one another is based upon our personal, ethical walk of righteousness, which undergirds and strengthens the way we relate to one another. So let's note that Paul has begun with their personal walk, and then he deals with their corporate or relational walk. Now, as Paul continues, he he continues by telling them, Remember, here there is no Greek, Jew, circumcision, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. He says that there are no earthly distinctions such as race, ethnicity, financial status, education, etc. In Christ, there are no distinctions. We all enjoy equality of acceptance and love by God the Father. Now, one of the things that I emphasize when I do marital, uh, premarital um, uh, counseling is that there is no inequality between the husband and the wife. There is absolute, complete, and forever equality of love, acceptance, standing. There are differences of roles, but that does not mean that the role of one as compared to the role of the other, is either superior or is to be denigrated. Even the roles functioning and achieving God's purpose specifically in a particular way does not mean that this role is superior. Therefore, you see, the elder or the pastor is not superior in his role to the role of the person who was just saved two seconds ago. It is different, but it is not a superior role. It is a different role. To say superior, then we begin to create distinctions about someone else because we remember, whom are we imaging in our roles? Whom are we imaging in our relationship? Whom are we imaging? We are imaging God. We're imaging the way God is in himself. And to say that there is a distinction of equality or inequality or better, more equality or superiority and inferiority is to say something about the persons of God that is not true. And so let's look around. And there are two elders in this room, Bill Treby and myself. And, and Bill would be with me in this, and he would say with me, don't look at us as if we are superior. Don't you agree with that, brother? Don't ever do that. That is Satan using our pride, our flesh, our whatever. Don't think that because Frank Gloria teaches eight of the alpha classes that he has a superior place from you who just open doors to people in the morning. That's all you do, Gordon, is open doors. Look at Frank does. Man, Frank Gloria, Keith Collins. No. 
in the view of God. We are equal. I talked to a person the other day who was sitting downstairs, and I saw that he was dressed as a waiter. And I said, thanks for serving people. And he had made some comment about that. He says, all I do is serve. I said, wait. I said, the greatest man who ever walked upon the earth not only served, but he stooped down and he washed feet. I said, you are doing a magnificent and weighty work, a great work. So if you have any thoughts of any inequality because of your background, because of your race, because of your finances, because of your education, because of anything, in Christ all of those have been obliterated. Listen to what 2 Peter 1.1 says. He writes, he's writing this letter, to those who have, have ab- obtained a faith of equal standing. Equal standing. Listen to what Galatians 3.27 and 8 say. <clears throat> For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, in other words, you have been placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's a euphemistic term which means you've been saved. To all who have been saved and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. Now that is taken by some to mean that we all are to function in the same roles, that men and women have the same roles, that everybody and anybody, notwithstanding gender, can be a leader in the church. No, that is not what that says. That is a verse of standing and not a verse of roles. It's a verse of how we are before God. So may I make sure by the Holy Spirit to disabuse you this morning of any personal thought, any personal feeling that you are not as significant as anyone else. Please don't say that person is more important than I am. The youngest person in here is probably Nicholas Pell. How old are you? Anybody younger than 13 in here? Who is that back there? that James huh right I mean I'm sorry James uh, Andrew is that Andrew Descant how old are you oh wait 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 we're getting all kind of kids back here it doesn't matter the age of the youngest person in Christ The moment you were born into the kingdom, the word equality is put on all of us. Do we have that right? Okay. So Paul, remember, as he begins to tell them, he's already told them, put off these personal ethical sins and put on ethical morality. Put on righteousness, the righteous deeds. And now he's going to talk about the characteristics of Christ. And as he does that, he prepares and says, look, before I tell you this, make sure you have this right. In Christ, we are all equal before God. Amen? Why? Christ is all and in all. What's the basis of it? What's the basis of our equality in Christ? What has happened that they should now become equals and be recognized by God and should recognize one another as equals, recognizing and 
functioning without any relation to distinctions at all. Christ is all and in in all. You know, one of the biggest sins that have been perpetrated against the image of God in this country over the years in the past has been this thing that the white churches kept the black folks out, and now the black folks don't want the white folks in. That is a major sin in the church. Can you say amen? It's sin. The church is to be populated by black and white and Asian and every other group. So God has a multifaceted, a multicolored church. Everyone coming in and all that obliterated as far as earthly distinctions. So he has a beautiful tapestry that shows forth the brilliance and the glory of the Son of God. Why is this true? Because Christ is all in all. As members of God's new community, we are to relate to one another as equals the way the persons of God relate to one another as equals so that God's purpose for saving us can be fulfilled. Amen? So why should we relate as equals? Because in doing so, we are making a statement, this is how the members or the persons, rather, of God relate. There is that interrelationship among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three are absolutely, eternally, and forever comprehensively equal in every respect. The only distinction is through roles. And that's why our equality and the functioning of our equality is something not only to be done, but to be guarded and to be fought for. We must fight for equality among ourselves because it says something about God. Only as we function as equals can we properly image the equality of the purposes, persons of God. <clears throat> so don't put yourself down. And don't put yourself up. Don't do either. Keep yourself on the level playing field where all of us really are. Amen? Verse 12. Therefore put on. Therefore they are to put on those activities that speak about their mutual equality in Christ. Failure creates divisions and stumbling within the church, distorting the image of the equality of the persons of God. I mean, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, Paul basically is dealing with this whole issue that the unity of the church is being disrupted by all of these distinctions. I can speak in tongues, you can't. I'm giving more than you are. I've been a member of this church for a hundred years. You just can't. All of that is to be washed away in Christ. And it distorts and disrupts and breaks down the functional unity of the church. And the problem with that is that when that is distorted and it breaks down, it says something about the unity within God himself. You see, every one of our sins breaks down and finally says something about God himself. This is the reason and the basis for anything and everything we do and who we are in Christ. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You see what I'm doing? Put on as God's. You see where I'm going here. As God's holy ones and beloved. Paul reminds them, and he reminds us. The Holy Spirit reminds them and us. 
that our motive and our ability for putting on rests in who we are in God, in Christ, and who Christ is in us. It rests on our identity in Christ and his identity in us. It is not sufficient to say who I am in Christ. It is more sufficient to say whose I am in Christ and who Christ is in me. We have to go both sides of this so we'll get it right. The whole thing rests on our identity. When we begin to understand our identity in Christ and his identity in me, that is our motive and that is our empowerment for actually walking out these characteristics. We are God's chosen ones. Remember Ephesians 1.4, for God has chosen us in Christ when? When? When were you chosen? Greg, when were you chosen? Just when you got saved or when you chosen? When? Before the foundation of the world. I've said this before, I'll say it again. When we were saved was the day that we came into the reality that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. That is not when God chose you. When you said, Jesus, save me, God didn't say, oh, okay, Errol, I'll save you, and now you're mine. Errol, before you were even conceived, before the worlds were begun, you, in God's purpose and intention, according to the declarative will of his power at a particular time, you were God's son. You just didn't know about it until some years ago, right? Aren't you glad that it doesn't require me first to call upon the name of the Lord and then he'll call upon me? If that is your theology, first you better read your Bible again, and secondly, you better be very glad that God is not like that. Right, Michael? God's not like that. Because if that's the way he was, we have no hope. We have no hope. We have no hope. So when were we chosen? Ephesians 1.4, remember these verses before the foundation of the world. They're God's holy ones. Remember, they're God's holy people. Ephesians 1.5, why were we chosen? Why were we chosen before the foundation of the world? That we should be holy and blameless before God. See, Sherry, God saved you so you would be a holy and blameless woman in your character, in your walk, in everything about you. that we would be holy and blameless. Why? What's so important about being holy and blameless? Because you see, it bespeaks about God's character himself. Everything about me is I'm imaging God. Everything about you is we're imaging God. Everything about the way we walk, the way we relate, everything about the activities of the church, my personal activities, my thoughts, my desires, my actions, Everything about us, now that we are children of God, has to do with our imaging, our great creator and redeemer. This is the basis of everything. This is why we're together here this morning. We're God's beloved people. God's beloved people. I, I think one of the most astounding verses, and I remember when I first read it, I, I, it's not that I didn't believe it. Trish, I believed it. I, I just could not bring myself to, to believe it. Does, does that make, are you with me on this? Uh, does that make sense to you? 
I believed it, but I just couldn't bring myself, James, to believe it. John 17, 26. That what? That the love that you have for me may be what? Jesus speaking to the Father. May be where? Far and Barker, where? In me, in you. You see, Denny, that tells me, Roz, that tells me that the very same love that God the Father has for the Son is now shed abroad in my heart for me. And if that weren't so, then God himself makes distinctions, and he will not make distinctions. There's not a person in here, if you're saved, who is loved less than everyone else in here. You may feel love. The devil may tell you about this, but these are lies. There is not a person. Each person in here we need to see, especially in those dark times and those difficult days and all of that, we need to jump up when things are not going well in our lives, and we need to jump up, and we need to yell with a tenacious holding on to what God has said and to say, no matter what is happening, I am loved by my Father in the, with the same love with which he loves Jesus himself. We need to say that. We need to fight for it, Steve. We need not to be wimps and broken down. and Stop it. It's sin. It's Satan's world. Get your back girded with the strength of God. And when these things begin to happen in your life, stand up and fight against the devil and fight against your sin and fight against the world and fight against all that would oppose this. Amen? I am a man before God that he loves me with the same love, Nicholas, with which he loves his own great son. Now, I believed that, but I couldn't believe it until God began to show it to me. Now, it doesn't mean I'm God at all, that's for sure, but at least today, I know that's true. I not only know it intellectually, which I knew it then because the Word says, but, Joe, today I know it. I know it. I know it. Now, I'm going to take a chance and say something in here you may not like, but So I'm going to do it. Bill Treby's holding on. Now, listen, listen, listen. And I'm going to be very direct about this, and I'm going to make a point because it's, it needs to be made. You see, when folks say the N-word to you black folks, oh, my word. Oh, my word. Do you know what he just called me? Does it matter? You know what? No earthly distinctions. It don't matter no more. Why? Because you're loved by God the same way as Jesus, and let them call me anything they want. Let them say anything they want. Let them do anything they want. Right, James? Why? Because I am no longer that which the world calls me. I am a son of God. I am a daughter of the Most High. Can you say amen? Let us make sure that we get free of these things that entangle and destroy the work of God in our lives. Don't like tippy-toeing around the bush. Stomp the bush down and let's move forward. Let us not be squeamish among ourselves and within this church. 
So someone says something to you or degrades you or whatever, who the cares? What does it have to do with me anymore? What does it have to do with me anymore? I've been redeemed. I've been washed. I've been forgiven. The old life has been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. We need to put these things on. This is the way we need to live. Especially when you get married and all of a sudden all this stuff begins to hit the wall. Man, yeah, but you don't understand. Yeah, mm-hmm. What are we to put on? Look at this list. Now, I, I, was, I, I felt specifically, I started it, and I felt specifically the Lord said, don't go down the road to take this list and make it a whole class. Okay, I'm not going to do that. But let me encourage you to do this. Take these words and do a word study on them. Do a word study on them. You can do that. Compassionate hearts. Now, when this list is given for us in our relationships with others, if you were the only person on the, in, on the earth, you don't need a compassionate heart. How many of you know that? If you're living on an island by yourself and there are only frogs and ants and whatever, squirrels, Susie, do you need a compassionate heart? We only need compassionate hearts because we're dealing with other sinfully acting people in the church. Come on. Aren't we? I mean, I need a compassionate heart when I deal with some of you people. And all of you need a compassionate heart when you listen to me. <laughs> and let me say this about compassion. There was a man in my office one time, and he was there because of some issues in the family. And he said something to the effect the way his wife deals with it and he deals with it. How many of you know that issues in the family, wives deal with it one way and a husband deals with it another way? Amen. And he says to me, he said, my wife is more compassionate than I am. I said, she might be. I don't know. But not necessarily. She is differently compassionate. Now, wives get that. Husbands get it. The wife is differently compassionate than the husband is. But the compassion of the husband, if he's functioning in Christ, the compassion of the wife, if she's functioning in Christ, come together and are complementary, completing each other so the compassion of God is functioning the right way in the family. There is to be no competition in the family or in relationships we are to have this compassionate heart coming together and functioning hand in hand. No different, I'm sorry, no, you may be more or less. I can't judge that. God judges that. But I do know this. The husband, the men of the church are differently compassionate, generally speaking, than the women of the church. How many of you women have noticed that? Now, don't raise your hand on this, but how many of the women have been critical of the way a man is compassionate? Because you don't get it. How many of the men have been critical of the way women are compassionate? Because we don't get it. We must see that all of us are compassionate according to our roles. Come on, come on, church, right? Roles. And look what God is doing. I need to move along. We need kindness. I don't like a lot of these words because I don't find myself in them very actively. Notice I said actively. I'm in them potentially, but not as actively as I need to be. Humility. I mean, I have a lot to be humble about, so you're going to have to think about that later. Meekness. 
patience. Patience. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. You see, Paul gives us a list of relational characteristics that describe the way God has related to us in Christ. What are we reading here? This is the function of God's grace to me in Christ. Amen? Therefore, we are to relate to one another in the very same way. Why? Because we are imaging the community of God in so doing. These are not optional. This is the way Christ related to us. And the reason we are in the kingdom of God is because of this functioning character of God in this man, Jesus Christ. And this is where God has come to us in a man and has won our hearts into the kingdom of God. How many of us are thankful that he was compassionate, kind, patient, forbearing? How many of us know that today he continues to be compassionate, kind, gentle, forbearing, patient? Anyone in here, you don't need this? Yet, this is the way we are to be to one another. And the moment we are not patient, kind, gentle, forbearing, forgiving, kind-hearted, compassionate to one another, we are denying what he has done in us. And we are saying, this is how Jesus is. And we are liars. We are distorting the image of God. You see, this is a big deal to God. It's a big deal to God. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, so you also must forgive. Let it soak in. I know where I'm going. I have my notes right here. I just stop for your sake. You thought I didn't know what I was doing. Why is it silent all of a sudden? This is one of the most critical verses that is needed in relationships. And in fact, I could be corrected on this because I don't think the Bible says it this way, but I think this is possibly the most critical verse in relationships of all the verses. Now understand, humility and all that undergird this, but as a functioning relational activity, I believe this issue of forgiveness is at the heart. Why? Because I have first been forgiven and as a result of having first been forgiven, therefore I am now saved. Apart from my forgiveness in Christ, I would never have been saved. Forgiveness. And this, in my mind, the, just the very little bit of experience I've had over the several years of counseling with people, this, especially husbands and wives, is the biggest block of the relationships. Bill's counsel with people, would you say you have seen the same kind of a thing? This issue of believers refusing to forgive. Why are we to forgive one another? Because we're forgiven. How much have I been forgiven? Romans 5, 6, what does it say? When I was weak and helpless, 
Romans 5, 8. When I was a sinner. Romans 5, 10. When I was an enemy. How much have I been forgiven? How much have you been forgiven? Is there anything that any of us have ever said or done that has not been included in God's comprehensive forgiveness of us? Anything at all. Is there anything that we have done in sinning against God which is not as important as how we have been handled by someone else? Would any of us, by saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, you don't understand, but, 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 by saying that we are more important than God because since God has forgiven us everything, we simply can't because our majesty, the glory of who I am, has been offended in a way that God can forgive, but I will not forgive because don't you know who I am? This is, to me, I don't know the height, but at real close to the height of arrogance and pride and rejection of the mercy of God. In fact, if you looked at Romans 1, beginning about verse 28 or so, Paul begins to give a list of the activities of those who have been rejected by God and has given them over. And as it goes down the list, the last one, if you look at the Greek, because your translation may not have it, the last one, the last one in this descending order is no mercy, unmerciful. Why is that the worst? Why are we at the bottom? Because God is merciful. Ephesians 2, 4, but God. But God being what? Rich in mercy. And mercy produces forgiveness. You know, when you are in a relational problem, tiff, argument, clashing. Now, may I say this? I don't care what they said to you, what they did, how they did it. I don't care. In this context, I care, but you understand. Within the context of our forgiving, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Don't even begin to think that because you elevate yourself above the majesty of God himself. It's Satan. It's flesh. I don't care what the issue is. Here's how I have to do it, and here's how I do do it. When I am offended, hurt, talked about, slandered, and I've had my fill of this. I don't mean in a bad way. I've had a lot of this in our days. And I, again, talk about Bill because he and I have been elders in this church for a long time together. We've had a lot of this, haven't we, Bill? Personal, personal things happen. Very hurtful, very disappointing things that have happened to me, to Bill, to everyone in here probably. And I look at this, and my first gut reaction is to strike out against to defend, to justify me, to begin to argue, to begin to retaliate, vengeance. That's your first gut reaction. Everybody with me on this, or are you that different? Let me come slap you across the face and see what your gut reaction is. (laughs) Anybody want to take a chance? I'm going to slap you. If you raise your hand, I am going to slap you hard. 
Now, those of you watching by TV, TC raised his hand, so I had to get back there fast. The first thing I ask is this. Here's the first thing I ask. You don't have to leave, Susie. I'm not going to get you. Look, look, the old people are leaving. I can't take that. Anybody else raise that? <laughs> we have a ministry of laying on of hands around here, brethren. There's a Pentecostal church. But look, the first thing I have to ask, let me look at my notes, see where I am. Here's the first thing I have to ask. Write it down. Here's the first thing. I, I, I got the gut action, right? Dave, you ever been hurt? You ever been hurt? Have I been hurt? Mike, you ever been hurt? Anybody in here not been hurt by someone? Here's the first thing. <laughs> Has God forgiven me? That's the first question I ask. Am I forgiven? Second question, how much have I been forgiven? Susie, what's left out? Cherise, what's left out? It's okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get everybody's name backward. What's left out? Nothing. Andrew, I'll get it right. How much is left out? Nothing. How much is left out? Nothing. For how long am I forgiven? Until the next time flow, how long am I forgiven in Christ? Forever. In view of this, is there anything, anything, even the N-word, is there anything that I would say I can't forgive. You have to answer that before this God of ours who has nailed his own son to the cross. Look at the cross. And when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, I am here today because of that request, and so are you. So let us be first and foremost a forgiving people so we can be a relational people. Don't let Satan fool you any longer in this area. No matter what has happened, no matter what, ask these questions. Let the Holy Spirit minister to you and be freed to forgive. Next week we'll do verses 14 to 17.